Amen. Hey, this morning we are going to be in the book of Galatians chapter 5, looking at verses 13 through 15. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be something you take home with you, a gift from us to you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front. It's going to let you know where the book of Galatians is located. And then this morning, as we're kind of working through some different books and seeing what the Bible says about the passage you're looking at, uh, the large numbers are going to be chapters, the small numbers are verses. But this morning, we're going to spend the majority of our time in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Let me, let me read this for us, and then we will walk through. The Apostle Paul writes, and he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, when I'm thinking about this, my mind, for whatever reason, went back to a dog that my family was given my junior year of college. Now, he was not much to look at, but he, he was a good dog in some sense. And so we were given this uh, Weimaraner who was red in color. It's the oddest thing. His name was Buddy. And if you have Buddy on a leash, he was the most obedient dog I had been around. I mean, he just kind of basic obedience things. He would sit, he would stay, he would lay down, he'd come to you if you called him. I, I think if the dog had opposable thumbs and you gave him some eggs and said, I want, scrambled, I want some scrambled eggs, I want an omelet, he could have probably done it. He was a smart dog, but he had a key critical flaw. You see, there was this sound that when, when Buddy heard it, he became a holy other dog, and the sound was this. And the first time I did that, I met Buddy's alter ego, and we're just going to call him, well, I can't use that name in this context. But I, I, I remember I bent over, and I said, Buddy, sit, Buddy, stay. And so he stayed. I'm like, oh, this is pretty good. He stays. And I walked over to him, and I bent over to his collar, and, and he was off. And he was gone. I mean, like a shot of lightning. I mean, he was just out of there, took off running and barking and howling. I mean, I just started looking at his leash thinking, the power in this thing, what in the what? And he ran and he started chasing our horses and he would grab them by the tail and swing around and then he'd run around us barking and all these things. And I thought, what is wrong with you? But he, but he completely misunderstood freedom, right? And we never knew that Buddy did not understand the limitations inherent in freedom until we set him free. Within this same mindset, we recognize that Paul has been communicating to the churches there in Galatia that they are misunderstanding and misappropriating what their freedom is meant to be used for. So you remember back in, in chapter 5 and verse 1, he said, it is for freedom that you've been set free. Only do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So what was the problem? He says, listen, 
you need to understand something that Jesus Christ came into your life, that he has, he has released you from the power, from the sting, from the hold of sin in your life. And his purpose for you, his plan for you, is that you would live in the ready enjoyment and the experience of this freedom. And they said, we get that. But they had this desire in them that they wanted to have something this tactile. They wanted to have something they could reach out, reach out and touch. They wanted to have something that was a part of themselves. So they began to see themselves living in this full experience and understanding of the law. I understand the law. There's something I can do. There's something I can take on. And he told them, when you do this, when you live in this way, when you engage in this way, you are not really living in freedom. You're submitting yourself to legalism, you're submitting yourself in some sense to the opinions of others and you're trusting in their perception of your righteousness to save you. That's what he wrote in chapter 5 and verse 1. And so we recognize on, on the one hand we have this ditch that is legalism. And what Paul does within these few short verses is he gives us a picture of the other ditch and that is libertinism. That is Freedom probably has mo how most of us would choose to articulate it. Doing whatever I want, acting however I want, and no one can tell me any different. We've been set free. We're running around. We're doing whatever we want, and no one has the ability to correct my behavior. But notice how he comes into it. You were called to freedom. So we run into this with this understanding that the triune God has radically affected you and me. He's radically affected us in how we live. Now back in chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, For he who called you in the grace of Jesus Christ. So we see that the grace of Jesus Christ was operative in calling us out of entrapment and being ensnared to sin. So there's some way, there's some manner in which we formerly lived and existed. And in reality, what that was, was slavery. In reality, what that was, was you and I being entrapped to sin. We kept sinning, we kept doing things we didn't necessarily want to do. But there was no end to our appetite to be satisfied. And he says, in the middle of these things, God interrupted your enslavement. He, interrupt, he interrupted your slavery with the power of Christ's grace, and he drew you from that. In chapter 3 and verse 3, he goes to them and he says, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? And so we have this understanding that God the Father called us. He called us through the agency of, of the, the blood of the Son, and he called us through the power of the Spirit. And our freedom is maintained solely by the power of, of the blood of Jesus and by the uplifting and the undergirding of the Spirit. And so he reminds them, he reminds them of that again. You were called to freedom. Listen, as you sit here today, as you listen online, the Trinity... The triune God desires for you to have an experience and an enjoyment of his person in the expression of freedom. Now some of us have taken something so much less. And what we've taken is a desire to have a life that is very religious. It is very program programmatic. It is very orderly. But it is empty of the power of spirit and the experience of the freedom of God. And others of us, what we've, what we've taken and what we're enjoying is this, this lavish display of our own personal enjoyment of freedom. And we love it. We're very thankful to God occasionally. But we most enjoy, we most love our experience of freedom. 
And so in this, what we're doing is we're saying, God, I recognize in Trinity you saved me and you saved me to freedom. But what I really want is freedom the way that I describe it. And so what he meets them with in this passage is a radical interruption to that way of life and that mindset. Look at how he continues. You are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom. Do not use the thing that God has given to you, the thing that he has called you towards as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, this word opportunity, Paul writes to them, and what he was communicating to them wasn't just an occasion. It wasn't just, you know, you, you're going along and, and you're bored and you're looking around and you're like, I have an opportunity. I have time to move and act as I want. In using this word opportunity, Paul is asking them to paint this picture of, in their mind of, uh, of a military force that's out, that is engaging, and they set up a strategic base of operation. And from this strategic base of operation, they begin to send out attacks. And, and, and they go out and they attack this area, and they come back for a time of regrouping, for a time of refreshing, and then they go out and they attack again, and then they come back to this base of operations. So this base of operations that Paul is telling them not to give an opportunity to is the flesh. Now, this requires something of us. It requires something that in the middle of these things, we are asking this question of how are we using our freedom within the context of our lives? What does our exercise of freedom look like? Is it an exercise in, in the flesh, or is it an exercise in the spirit? Let's skip ahead. Chapter 5 and verse 16. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 21, Paul gives us a picture of what it looks like to use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He says, but I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So we come into this with this understanding, that if we live in submission to the Spirit, the spirit that we have begun in, right? The spirit that began our freedom, we will not gratify, we will not live, we will not be fed by the desires of the flesh. He goes on, he says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. He says they are plainly seen, they're easy to recognize. They're not hiding, they're not difficult to discern. It's not me raising my hand and saying, hey, do you, I just, I feel like I'm hiding this really well. I'm not sure that you can tell whether or not I'm in the flesh or in the spirit. He says they're evident, they're clearly seen. They are idolatry, they are sorcery, they are enmity, they are strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. It sounds like a lot of family gatherings drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. In essence, he says, this isn't the total list, but there are things in line with this, things that gratify, that please the flesh. And these are radically opposed to the Spirit. And we come to this understanding that he has given us the Spirit in salvation. He has called us to abide in the Spirit. He says, so don't give this, don't allow this to be an opportunity, this base of forward operations for the flesh. Now, in Romans chapter 8, and don't turn there, you can just write this down. In verses 1 and 2 and verse 9, listen to what Paul says. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free, free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You have been set free by the spirit. And you have been set free unto the spirit. You've been set free. Not according to the flesh, but by the Spirit. And then verse 9, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So a basic definition of what it looks like to be in Christ, of what it looks like to be a Christian, is to be one who is indwelt and directed by God's Spirit. So we come to this understanding and begin to think through, what does it look like for me to exercise my freedom in Christ? What exactly am I free to do? And really a better question is, what exactly are we free to do? It's not to pursue the things we want. It's not to pursue the things that make us happy. It's not to pursue those things that gratify the flesh, that the flesh readily delights in. So in some sense, the the mirror of the world becomes this counter mirror for the Christian. What things does the world revel in? What does it enjoy? Power, sex, money, manipulating and using people, being made much of, pride, arrogance, rejoicing at the loss and dismay of others. And the only time that's appropriate is when Arkansas beats the snot out of Texas. Listen. Amen? Amen. Praise Jesus. Let us pray. <laughs> so few teams deserve to lose with such epic embarrassment as the University of Texas. And we should make note of it often. Verily, I say unto thee, brothers. Hey, so they did. Amen. I love a good testimony. (laughs) This is where the difficulty comes. He says your freedom can't be an opportunity for the flesh. And so what does our mind go to? I need to put systems and processes in place to keep my flesh in check. I need to put systems and processes in check in place to keep my flesh in check. I need to find brothers and sisters around me to keep my flesh in check. But what does he say? The weapon he gives us for keeping our flesh in check within this passage is living out our freedom. And how do we live out our freedom? By serving one another. You will interrupt the process of living out a selfish indulgence of your freedom in the flesh if you serve one another. This is, this is probably not the answer that you thought you were going to get. I really thought, Pastor, you were going to give me five ways to mortify the flesh. Step one, beat myself silly. Step two, find someone to beat myself silly. Step three, find someone with something not so heavy to beat myself silly. <laughs> Step four, go to a voice coach. But what does he say? He says the, 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 the way that we keep from... Giving our freedom an opportunity to serve the flesh is through serving one another. The fantastic thing about us in the middle of this is you and I hear the word service, and we begin to think of this low bar of something easy, right? 
taking out the trash for my neighbor, uh, doing something kind, doing something I may not want to do. Maybe I'm going to watch Paw Patrol again instead of watching college football. Maybe I'm going to do something uh, like that. But the picture he gives us isn't a low bar of service. The word he uses here is actually becoming a slave one to another. And this becomes something so much more difficult. This becomes something so much more revolutionary and something so incredibly assaulting to our heart and an expression of selfishness because the antidote for selfishness is serving someone else. In fact, the antidote for selfishness is you and I together as a corporate body coming together and saying, who can we enslave ourselves to? Oh yeah, one another. That we corporately live, that Christians corporately live out this manifested body of service one to another. Saying, I freely take on the moniker of slave to you. As you freely take on the moniker, the name, the label of slave to me. We are living in this life one to another. And Jesus gives us the pattern. In Philippians 2, 6 through 8, speaking of Jesus, he says, though he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a, everybody say, a slave. He took the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you want to know what the antidote for, for selfishness is? For being enslaved to the flesh, the antidote to that is being a slave one to another. And that's challenging. That's so incredibly difficult because in the middle of it, what we ask ourselves is, yeah, but what are the limitations on this? Won't somebody take advantage of me? And listen, the problem with that understanding, the problem with that understanding in the middle of this is we are asking and applying this primarily personally. Because you're not yet beginning to think corporately. He doesn't say you, Justin. He doesn't say, you, Robert. He doesn't say, you, Anna, do this. He says, y'all do this. Be enslaved one to another. Ridgecrest. People that happen to find themselves sitting uncomfortably in this pew this morning, find yourself being enslaved one to another. And notice, he doesn't say just for a moment or just for a Sunday or just for an afternoon or just for a day. What we're meant to do time and time again is answer the problem of an opportunity for the flesh, answer the problem of perverting our freedom in Christ with a willing submission and subservience one to another. This is the antidote. And this is why we have so many problems in churches. And this is why we have so many problems wrangling with the idea of, oh, is this approach best or is this approach best? And we're not asking the question of, yeah, but what would it look like if we quit caring about that and we started caring about what it looks like for all of us to serve all of us? What would it look like? What would it look like for Christ? Although he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but divested, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a slave, he died. It's almost like God was in heaven. He said, what is the most paradoxical thing that we could do? I know what we could do. We could completely empty you of your right for power. We completely empty you of your right for glory. We could send you down to be despised. We could send you down to be beaten. And at the end of all these things, we could send you down to take upon the sin that all those who are beating you are heaping upon you. That's what we could do. 
And when you do that, you become their slave. And what do people do to slaves? They abuse them, they despise them, they kick them to the curb. And when they do that, I'm going to raise you up. So then there's paradoxical understanding that as Christ becomes lower, he becomes the lowest so that you and I might be lifted up from his death because he who became low also became he who was exalted. This is what he calls us to. Putting to death our flesh. Putting to death my sinful pride. Putting to death all those various things that war for attention. They want to be recognized. They want to be number one. So he goes on, he says, listen, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. And quoting Leviticus 19, 18, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, the Apostle Paul expounds on this in Romans 13, 8 through 10. Listen to what he says. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We come to this understanding that to love one another well, to serve one another well, is to complete the law of the Lord. And you may hear this and say, well, what if me serving someone else causes me to endorse their sin? Then I would tell you, brother, that sister, that is not loving someone well. Loving them does not cause you to, to move in to endorse their sin. Recognize this, that loving them well and being their servant does not call you to engage in this solo. It is a corporate endeavor. It is you, plural, serve one another. You, plural, be enslaved perpetually to one another. And it is, for the, the perp, it is a purpose posture of continual service for their benefit. Do you, do you get that? Do you hear that? It is the purposed posture. It's you setting your mind and setting your heart saying, this is who we will be. And we will not rest until we arrive there. And when we arrive there, then we will continue to draw other people and say, why don't you come serve other people with me? Why don't you come be a slave with me? Why don't we find somebody who's difficult? Oh, that's us. That's great. Let's serve each other. We already have a ready captive audience. We are terrible people to serve. Amen. Raise your hand. Hallelujah. And this is who we're called to serve, each other. And you say, well, that's not so great. I want to serve some really likable, wonderful people. Oh, praise God, me too. But I got you guys instead. But the good news is he doesn't send us out as a one-man force. He says, together love one another. And what is the consequence if we don't do this? What is the consequence if we choose to say, oh, Pastor, if I could be honest, I wanted to come the first Sunday of the month, so this is kind of a downer for me. And so I'm just going to excuse this, because my wife, I told her, you know, whatever. The problem is, is if we don't do this together, we're just not going to do this. And if you can't find it in you to love your brother and sister in Christ, then the word from the apostle John is, you're probably not a Christian. Don't believe me? Okay. 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So unless you're comfortable with the moniker of being a liar and being a person who's cast out from God, you better begin to try and find it in your heart to love your brother and your sister. And if you look around this church and say, well, I just need to find a more lovable group of people, they don't exist. I'm not saying that because you guys are the most lovable. I'm just saying that because every other church has people in it, and every other church with people has problems in it, and every other church of people who has problems in it is going to be a group of people who are difficult to love. Or so has been my experience. Maybe you'll be lucky and find somewhere else. I have a feeling that if you find that other place, they're highly medicated and they're going to require you to be as well. Because they're not looking at the problems that they have. They're not looking at the problems that you have. And you guys are, I'm okay, you're okay, thin veneer, let's go on with our day. If we don't address this, this is what happens. We will bite. We will devour one another. The answer to division within the church of Jesus Christ is being a slave one to another. Look at what he says. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. If you're to take a look across the churches, let's just stay in Greenville, okay? It's easy to go beyond that. But if you're to take a look around the churches in Greenville, how often have we seen this? People biting and devouring one another. And the root of this becomes, and, and often cases, becomes an expression of self. Becomes an expression of, I want this for myself. I'm not getting it. I'm not getting my way. So I'm going to bite them through my words. I'm going to bite them through my attitudes towards them. And I'm going to attack them. Think about it within this church. Not quite 20 years ago, you have a pastor at this church who loves the church. He made some mistakes. People in the church, they made some mistakes. And then you have people splitting on either side. So I support the pastor. I support the deacons. I support this group. I support green carpet. I mean, I mean they're just kind of an outlier but here. But you recognize that everybody's splitting into these various factions. And if you look at the attendance of this church and you look at its finances and you look at all these things, it's just climbing and climbing and climbing. And then it is cliff based. This church became a church of spiritual cannibals. Men and women devouring one another. Men and women destroying one another. Families sacrificed. This is no longer a safe place for my family and I to worship, they leave. I no longer recognize this person as my brother and sister, and they leave. When I first came to Ridgecrest, I began to have meetings with people that thought they were members, but they hadn't been in a decade or more. I remember meeting with this one couple. They sat down on the couch in my, in my office, <laughs> and they began to bring back up 10-year-old pain and 10-year-old anger directed at this pastor he's an awful person he is such a terrible person they were biting they were devouring the solution to this what God has given us is choosing to take the posture of a slave 
choosing to take the posture of someone who has no value in first century society and saying, I'm willing to serve you. The things you're doing are sinful and wrong, but I choose to serve you. You see what we did there. We didn't rationalize the sin. We didn't excuse the sin, but neither did I use their sin as an opportunity for my flesh to be out. We have to stay in this together. The solution for most of the church problems in our community and beyond is people driving this is the overarching principle of their church that we must be slaves one to another. We must choose this. Instead of choosing to allow my selfish pursuits to drive the direction of the church. Jesus in Mark 10, in verse 45, he says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. Now, some of us, even as we sit here, you recognize that you have never allowed yourself to be served by the Son of God. See, God doesn't call us to a posture of emptiness and humility and then from this place of, sub, of subservience that he saves us. God saves us in our rebellion. He delights in saving us in our waywardness. He delights in saving us in our sinfulness. If you are here this morning and you have never cried out to Jesus to be forgiven of your sins and to be saved, that's how he wants to serve you. You see, the Son of Man took upon himself your sin. He took upon himself the punishment for your sin. And he calls you to himself. That's what I'd love to talk with you or have one of our elders talk with you about at the end of our service today. And my prayer for us as a church is that even in the midst of COVID, even in the midst of all the difficulty, you were 20 years ago, on September the 12th, the unity that you felt, you just walked by and said hello to people. People you didn't know because we recognized that we had all gone through something together. Y'all, in salvation, we have gone through something together so much more amazing than the unifying events of September the 12th. He has made us one. And he keeps us one by the power of his spirit. And it is dependent upon us to be a people who do not live in the experience of the flesh, but who live in submission to the power of the spirit. Let me pray for us. Father, you are good and glorious. God, we need you. We need your salvation. We need the redemption. You work in us through the power of Jesus Christ, his blood shed for us. So God, I pray if there are any in here who have not been served by your son Jesus, God, that in humility that they would give themselves to you. That they would speak with me or one of the other pastors and say, what do I have to do to be saved, to come to know Jesus? I want to be changed. I want to be made new. And God, I pray that you would stir within the hearts of those who already know you a longing, a desire 
an unquenchable thirst that wants to live a life of perpetual servitude one to another. God, that in serving, that in being enslaved one to another, that we would make much of you, that we would glorify you. So God, we submit this request to you in the name of your son, and we ask for the powerful movement of your spirit. God, we ask that you would lead us, that you would guide us as we worship you in song and glorify you. Singing worship to your name. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.